Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that this church has the opportunity to minister in so many ways, well beyond our size and our resources, Father, reaching far outside the city at times. None of those things, Father, come because of our own strength or wisdom. They come entirely because of the work of your Spirit and your choice to work through the hands and the feet of men like us. It's a privilege, Father, to be called by the Master. It's a blessing to serve. May our time in the study this morning be instruction and lamp to our feet so that as we seek to serve and seek to follow, we'll have a clear path and a better understanding of what pleases you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 12. You know, there's probably a few places I could take you in the Bible more important than the opening verses of chapter 12. And last week when we studied the end of chapter 11, we said we were turning a corner of sorts, that the book of Genesis is neatly divided by many into two parts. And we had just finished part one. It's a trilogy, really, something I haven't pointed out before, but part one of Genesis is really a three-part story, a trilogy, looking at it from a high level. It's a three-part story on the never-ending, all-consuming, destructive power of sin. And as such, it's a fairly sobering story. The first is the fall and the sin of the garden. That's how the whole thing really gets going after the creation. And after that fall, God responds by denying man fellowship with himself. But in the end, that's a grace because if we were to remain in his presence, judgment is the only response God could offer. The story continues from there with the depravity of men and the cohabitation of demons with women, as we saw prior to the flood and God responds by denying men their land. God wipes men off the face of the earth, drowning the bulk of them, leaving the continents split apart, mountains moved. He he takes men off the land and he leaves one family alive to repopulate the world. And then the third part of that story, as we finished last week in chapter 11, you have this united rebellious people led by the man Nimrod, worshiping at a tower and seeking a name for themselves, as the scriptures told us. The beginning of false gods and pagan worship, and God responds by scattering the men and women of the earth, denying them fellowship with one another, with the families of the world, causing them to separate. So you have fellowship with God lost. You had peace in the land lost. You had a united family of descendants from Adam spread apart, that fellowship lost. Three things taken from mankind because of the destructive effects of sin. Now, at this rate, sinful men are going to bring themselves to nothing if something isn't done pretty quickly to begin rectifying the problem of sin in the world. So far, they've lost three things. What more is at stake? Well, then enter now the promises God gives to a man, Abram. Read with me in chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's pause there. At the end of chapter 11, we're told, if you remember, that his father Terah takes Abram and Abram's family as it's constituted, and travels from Ur back to their ancestral home in Haran. And Moses told us at the end of chapter 11 
that the purpose of the travel was for Abram to enter Canaan. That's actually recorded at the end of chapter 11. Now we have Moses explaining to us why they made such an unusual move, why this family decided in the middle of what seems to be an otherwise normal life in Ur, they decide to uproot and start traveling hundreds of miles back to their ancestral home and ultimately into Canaan. The reason is because they were obeying God's command to move according to that direction. That was what started the process. Chapter 11 also told us, as you remember, that the father, Terah, he dies while they're in Haran. And at that point, Abram begins moving again and makes his way directly into Canaan. These promises, this astonishing revelation from God, many have correctly pointed out that at this point in chapter 12 and in the book of Genesis generally, we have the most important set of promises offered anywhere in Scripture because everything in the Bible comes from this moment. All the future promises, all the future revelation, all the fulfillment, Christ himself is the result of this promise. But then again, it itself traces all the way back, as you remember, to chapter 3 of Genesis in the garden, that there would be a seed through woman who would crush Satan. Now we're seeing a fuller understanding of that. Remember, Abram and his father, Terah, they knew nothing of the one true God when he appeared to them in Ur. That was the testimony we had from Joshua last week. That was the testimony we had from Acts last week. Here's Abram, minding his own business, going about his everyday life, worshiping pagan gods, participating in a pagan culture, just like you and I did before we knew the Lord. And then out of nowhere, we would assume, God appears to Abram one day. We don't see the details given here. We don't know exactly what that moment was like. But we're told that in some manner and in some fashion, God revealed himself to Abram. He tells Abram, leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, and enter a strange land that I'm going to show you. And God says that as Abram does those things, he's going to bring Abram to glory with specifically a great name, a great nation. He'll become a man of strength. A man who would bless all families or all nations in the earth. That's what God is holding out for Abram as he starts this journey. That's quite a promise. This is the first of seven times God is going to make an appearance to Abram and communicate his promises to Abram. Later we'll, of course, call him Abraham. But it begins here, chapter 12, begins here with a command. Look at what God says. God tells Abram first, you have to begin this chain of events by an obedient step of leaving your home. That's how this has to begin. If Abram were to stay in Ur, none of what is promised could follow logically. He's got to leave his home country. He has to leave his relatives. He has to leave his extended family. He has to leave his father's house. And by that he means specifically the ancestral home of Terah in Haran. That's what that reference to father's house refers to. It, it's addressing the issue of you can't go just to Haran and stay there. You need to keep going. Away from all of those support structures, away from all that comfort that you know in the world, you have to move out of all of that first, and then the rest will follow. So God's plan here to use Abram depends on Abram leaving everything in the world in which Abram finds his identity and his security. And then he depends on God's promises, and he relies on God's provision. That's the, the essence of what God has laid out here in front of Abram. You might stop and wonder at this point what might have happened had Abram not obeyed those commands? What if he had stayed in earth? And we could sit here and talk about that for a while, but in the end, the speculation would be pointless because he did leave. Everything did happen. He did obey. Why did he leave? On its face, it's, it's a pretty ridiculous requirement when you think about it. Put it in contemporary terms. What if, 
As an unbeliever, some of you, like myself, came to faith as an adult. So you know the difference. You remember, like I do, back to the days before we were believers. Put yourself back in that moment. Remember your life back at that moment. And God appears, and something out of the blue appears to you and says to you that you're being called into this relationship with a God you've never known before and take everything you know and set it aside and travel to the other side of the world. And, by the way, get going before you even know where you're headed. We know from Scripture in Hebrews, the letter written by the unknown author of Hebrews, that Abram stepped out without any clue where he was going. Hebrews 11.8 tells us that by faith, Abraham, as he's called later, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, if you're like me, we often do this, right? We head out without knowing where we're going, which is, thank goodness, we have iPhones now and GPSs. But this is a fundamentally different problem than simply getting lost. This is a one-way trip. You know, I always think about the fact that if I get lost, I can always go home and start over and get a map. Because you know I'm not going to stop and ask directions. That's That's not even an option. Abram didn't have that option. He's headed out with no hope to know where he's going and no hope to ever go back. That's his requirement. He had no idea where he was going. But what did he have? He had faith in God's word. That faith compelled him forward, overcame his doubts, his objections, and brought him into God's blessing. So in these first three verses, God begins to reveal his covenant with Abram. We call it the Abrahamic covenant because of the name change that comes later. This isn't the official moment in which the, the covenant is inaugurated. The covenants have terms They follow certain ritual practices. There's a certain moment in which we can say definitively, bam, that's when the covenant was cut or established. That all comes in a later chapter. But it's no less sure here. Just because we don't see all of those trappings doesn't mean that somehow it's not in effect. God is merely revealing his promises to Abram in stages. And at this early point, he's told Abram everything Abram needs to know if he is to step out in obedience. Hebrews 11.8 makes it abundantly clear that Abram was acting in faith in God's promises even at this early stage. Now, however God made it happen, he revealed himself to Abram in such a manner that Abram came to know God and know him truly. And in hearing God's word in those promises, Abraham believed what he was asked to do and what was going to follow. And therefore, we can say now, at this moment, as Abram begins this walk, he is a man of faith. Now, there's a later chapter of Genesis, you probably know if you've studied the book, in which we see God actually declaring Abram righteous on the basis of his faith in God's word. But Hebrews 11, verse 8, has already told us Abram's faith began as he departed Ur. It was in faith that he walked. And, in fact, it was because of his faith that he walked, that he would even dare to leave. And which direction is he headed, by the way? West, leaving from the east. Remember the motif? In the scripture, east is always identified with Satan. West is always identified with the promised land. There is a clear picture of Abram walking out of one world and into another, leaving behind the old, entering into the new, a man who was once a pagan worshiper, now a man of faith. Now, it's easy to see why he's become such a classic biblical picture of walking in faith, isn't it? But this same story, this story of God revealing himself to Abram, Abram following God's word in faith and walking into a new life, that is a quintessential picture of saving faith for everyone. To us today, 
God reveals himself through his son, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and culmination of all his promises and revelation. Like the writer of Hebrews himself said in the very beginning of that book, Hebrews 1.1, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we've reached the point now in God's plan of revelation in in which now the full expression of it is available to us in the person of Christ. We don't have to depend on some smaller subset of promises. We don't believe in an ark will get us through a flood. We now have come to the point where the promise that's laid before us is that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover the sin that you and I share. And if our trust is in that sacrifice, we need no other. That's the promise that's held out to us. By that revelation, we have the same opportunity Abram had. We are asked to do the same thing that Abram was asked to do. In spiritual terms, we're asked to leave behind the world, all that we know, our parents, our friends, our lifestyle, our pride, and instead of all those things, we would then turn and seek God's kingdom instead, following him. You don't think you've had to do all those things, perhaps? Some of you wonder, well, I don't remember the story coming out that way when we had the altar call. I don't remember the missionary telling me I had to give up all those things. Well, go to Scripture, for example. In John's Gospel, Christ himself says in John 12, 25, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. He doesn't really give us a lot of middle ground. He says it's one or the other. You either love the life you have or you'll love the life that's waiting for you eternally. You can't love them both. It's similar to when he says you can't serve two masters. Like Abram, you and I have been asked to forsake anything and everything that holds us back from a faithful walk in Christ, to include family connections if necessary. Some of you perhaps share a story like my own in which we're maybe the only believers in our family. I believe I may be in terms of my extended family. And so you know what it's like at Thanksgiving and Christmas and family reunions, right? You're on an island. Now, that's a good place to be when you're trying to reach people with the truth of the gospel. But in family terms, it's a difficult place to be. It's a, uh, it can be very hard. And sometimes those relationships pull on you. The mother, or the father, the, the brother, the sister, they want you to be someone you can't be anymore. To talk about things you don't want to talk about anymore or to pretend you're not who you really are now because it makes them uncomfortable. And you can do things like I do, I'm sure, to soften that a little, to not antagonize them if you can, but at the end of the day, it's a choice. Who are you with? Matthew 10:37, Christ says, "He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me." Now, you've got to hear Jesus' heart there, right? He's not seeking for that division. He's simply making it plain that if that's the choice you're making, if it's between that and him, he's not willing to compromise. Following Jesus means we turn our back on the world as necessary. And in place of what the world offers, we trust what Jesus holds in store for us. Abram didn't know what God was prepared to offer him. Hebrews just told us that. He didn't know what was coming. And in a sense, we are also in the dark. At the moment when Paul says we will receive an inheritance prepared for us based on our service to Christ in this world, when that moment comes, can any of us in this room tell definitively what will be waiting for us? We have hopes. We have expectations. We trust a fair and righteous judge will judge us appropriately. But we don't know what's waiting for us. 
We know that by grace we've been saved so that we will not see the penalty of our sin. Hallelujah. But for what God will hold out to us in reward, we don't know. But is that any reason not to follow him? That's Abram in Ur saying to his family, I've been called to something greater. What? Uh, I don't know. Where is it? I don't know that either. And you're leaving? Yeah. Because he said it's my inheritance. Because I trust his word. That's the starting point. Abram hearing God in Ur and then coming to know God. We know him fully in the face of Jesus. He knew God based on the word that he had been given. But that's when the walk begins. I don't think it's coincidence that God made this man walk a long distance. Isn't that a great picture of our walk in Christ? It's a long walk. We don't even know exactly where it's going to end because it only ends when we die. But we walk faithfully because we trust God's promise of an inheritance. And we look forward to something greater than what we can find in this world. That's the dichotomy. It's this world's offerings, God's offerings. This world's promises, God's promises. Which one are you following? And believe it or not, a believer can get trapped up in following the world's promises. That's the meaning of the sower and the seed when Jesus says that there are plants that grow from the seed but don't produce any fruit because they're caught up in the cares and the pleasures and the riches and the worries of this life. That's the Christian who stands still with the faith they've been given. Here's what else we hear about Abram. In Hebrews 11, the next two verses from the one I've already read, verses 9 and 10, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, because he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was in the land that God sent him to, but yet he lived like he was a foreigner because he knew, "Eh, this isn't my land. This is just temporary. The land I'm really waiting on, the inheritance I'm looking for is the one that comes from heaven that's how much faith this man is said to have so it's easy i think to see why so many generations of god's children in the years since this was written have looked back in history at abram's call and they have recognized god's fingerprints in their own lives mirroring what happened to abram and as we begin this week into a future set of weeks here looking in a detailed way at this man, at his life, of what all Scripture says about him and his walk of faith, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to draw these comparisons between what he did and what he saw and heard and our own walk of faith. We can start a little of that this morning. For example, I want you to look at these promises. We're going to study these three now in detail. I want you to look at how these relate to our own experience. The promise that God gives Abram here in these three verses come essentially in three parts. God will elaborate on these three parts in those future six Revelations that I mentioned are coming. But you already see the framework here. The basics are already established right here. First, if you're taking notes, number one, Abram is told here that he is to be sent to a new land, a land God will reveal. So he is told he is to begin this long walk to a strange land without any understanding where he's going, of course. Imagine, for example, a husband who's been blindfolded by his wife It's his birthday, let's say, and the wife wants to surprise him, so she blindfolds him and she leads him by the hand through the house to another room where she's prepared a surprise for him. And the husband is following the wife at that point, can't help but follow because he can't see, and he's trusting. He's trusting that the following is going to result in something good. She's not going to lead him to somewhere where she pushes him off a cliff. This is going to be a good result as she leads. And once he arrives in the room and she pulls off the blindfold, there's a brand new HDTV waiting for him. 
Just an idea. Just a thought. I don't know if it is. About a 60-inch. I'm imagining a 60... No, I don't want to get off on that. So, in a similar way, Abram is given this promise without any clear understanding of what it is or where it is. He's just told to follow God would lead him there. So we've covered that already. That's the first part of the promise. This initiative that he must follow. Second part, God says in verse 2, Abram will be granted a nation... You could also translate it a family, a people. And he will obtain a name that he is great. Those go hand in hand. A nation and a family or a people and a name that he is great. Now this promise is especially interesting because we already know that Moses has dropped us a, a key detail at the end of chapter 11. Remember? At the end of 11 he's introducing the characters in Abram's family. And when he gets to Abram's wife, Sarai, what does Moses say about her in passing? She's barren. Well, that's no small detail now, is it? We knew it wouldn't be. We know the story. But to the one who was hearing this for the first time, now it becomes an even more important detail. We realize God is somehow going to take Abram and produce a nation from this man, but yet his wife is not capable of having children. In chapter 10, by the way, if you go back two chapters, we heard that there would be 70 nations out of Noah's line. Remember? We added them up. There were 70. Now, though, God is saying to Abram, through you, I'm going to produce the 71st nation. Something new, different, and apart from any who have come already. And the world knows this nation was birthed by God and not by Abram because we are told at the outset, Abram's wife can't have children. That leaves our conclusion that if there is to be a 71st nation, it's only going to come if God does it. So Abram's going to receive a family and a posterity, and the result of that is his name is going to be great. And then finally, Abram will be a blessing to the world. He will see those who bless him becoming blessed, and he will see those who curse him being cursed. So those are the three pieces here that start the framework. Each of these promises has a specific fulfillment in Abram's life and in the family of the people that come from him. For example, Abram's promise here that a nation would come from him and that his name would be great. All of that is fulfilled ultimately in the rise of the nation of Israel out of his children and the reverence that they have even to this day to his name. He receives this new name, by the way, from God. He's called Abraham because God gives him that name and that is the name that becomes revered. Even today, you have Jews, Arabs, and Christians all looking back to that man in reverence for different reasons. The promise of the land... Well, in Abram's day, in Abraham's day, that's eventually fulfilled by the 12 tribes of Israel receiving land in Canaan. But that's not a fulfillment in total. That's a partial fulfillment. Eventually, there is a greater fulfillment when Abram receives the land that is promised for him in the kingdom that Christ has when he rules on earth. That's the full measure of that promise. It's not there yet for him. And then finally, the promise of blessings and cursings to Abram because of what others do. That's going to be seen in his life throughout the story of Genesis and in Israel's life generally. God alternately protecting them from adversaries or blessing their, their allies and so on. So all of those promises have a, a specific fulfillment in Abram's life, and we'll see more elaboration on these in the weeks to come. But I don't want you to miss the greater meaning in all of this spiritually. Besides the literal fulfillment, look at the promises, for example, in reverse order. Go back with me through them, but in reverse. Abram's told that through him the families of the earth will be blessed. Besides the specific fulfillment of how his allies are blessed or his enemies are cursed, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is understood to be in Jesus himself. 
We're going to see this more clearly in future chapters as God reveals it. But you're going to see that the blessing God intends to deliver to the world, to the nations, the families of the world, is fully realized in Messiah. Abram becomes the source of blessing to everybody in the world because through his line comes a Messiah through whom the whole world can be saved. Furthermore, God says, those who bless and curse Abram will receive the same in return. Now, how many of you have heard people talk at times that that's a proof in Scripture that how we view the nation, the political nation of Israel, will determine God's favor or curse upon us? This is not a verse that says, support the political Israel. And I'm certainly not saying it's a bad thing to support Israel politically. But I will tell you, that's not the meaning of the verse. Remember, we've said before that curse in the Bible doesn't have a general meaning. It's a very specific word. It means damnation. When God curses someone, he puts them on a one-way trip to hell with no chance of redemption. A sentence of hell that can't be reversed is the penalty for those who curse Abram. And then he juxtaposes that. He positions it against blessing. So if I'm in the context of damnation on one side, then I need to see the other side from the opposite point of view. Those who align themselves with Abram's example of faith in God's word will see the same spiritual outcome that Abram saw, that is, salvation and eternal blessing. Another way to say it simply is, do as Abram did and get what Abram got, spiritually speaking. But those who oppose Abram's example... Those who remain aligned with the world will receive the wages of their sin, which is judgment. I am not suggesting we shouldn't support Israel. That's not even in the point. It's just not in the text. What we're talking about here is a general principle that says, you will be a blessing to the world. And we know that ultimately comes through Christ. And those who bless you, those who align themselves with you, those who follow in your footsteps, those who repeat your example, will see the same outcomes. That is why Abram becomes known as the father of faith. That's why Abram is held up in Scripture as our model and example. That's why Paul in the New Testament pulls that example into the contemporary teaching of the church and says, this is how we know we are saved. We do what Abram did. And of course, if we don't, if we reject the gospel, if we reject the word of God as, as those who know him not do, then what else is there except curse? Except the judgment that comes for sin. In this way, God's promises to Abram will become the means for bringing blessing to the families of the earth. Going to the second promise, he's told he will receive a name for himself, and therefore so will those who follow in his footsteps. Jesus says that as we arrive in his presence, we receive new names. Did you know that? The name you're known by now is not the name you will be known by in the kingdom. God has got a better name for you when you arrive. And that name will reflect our service to him. Jesus gives us this in one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation when he says in Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, which is a way of saying to believers, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Finally, Abram was promised an inheritance in the land, was he not? The thing we probably remember the most. And we who have followed Abram's example of trusting in God's word, we also have an eternal inheritance awaiting for us. That's the promise of Scripture. Like Abram and all of Abram's descendants, we will have a place in the kingdom to call our own. It will not be in Israel. Israel is Israel. And unless you are Jewish, you're not Israel. But 
we will have another place somewhere else in the world that God prepares for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that place will be our residence in the kingdom. And we can be assured he will set that aside for us just as he has done for Israel. That's the meaning of Christ as he says, I go away to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms in my father's house. And when we receive whatever rewards are ours as we follow Christ into that world, they will be a testimony, a reflection of our service and our faithfulness to Christ in these days of waiting. That's the economy of God as Scripture lays it out. So just as Abram's blessing was contingent on his willingness to walk and follow God, all of these things I've just lined out for us are contingent on our obedience as well. Our faith, our salvation, that is by God's grace, that's not in question. But to receive the full measure of our inheritance, we must be willing to let God lead us by his hand and show us a better way and a better place. So those three promises are the gateway into all that follows in the rest of the Bible. That's not an overstatement, by the way. From chapter 12, verse 4, to Revelation 22, everything follows from these first three verses. The rest of the Bible is the story of how those three promises work their way through the life of Abram, the life of Isaac and Jacob, the life of the 12 tribes, the life of the nation of Israel, the life of the Gentile nations in response to the gospel after Christ's death on the cross. It's all a working out of these three promises. In fact, I want you to remember that trilogy that I started with this morning in chapters 1 through 11. The beginning of the book. Remember what we said? We saw sinful men lose fellowship with God, fellowship in his presence, and in the kingdom, in the garden as it was constructed then. We watched sinful men wiped off their land by the flood and lose their lives in the process. We saw idol-worshipping sinful men seeking a name for themselves by their own power. Remember that at the tower? And God responds by scattering them and separating the families of the earth so that what was once a single family now becomes many families who don't know and will have nothing to do with one another anymore because of language. Now in chapter 12, did you notice, in three short verses, God sets the terms for how he will correct for all three of those sad episodes. He provides the means by which he will restore, first, that fellowship with himself that was lost in the garden. Now by faith, the faith that Abram showed, we enter into a walk with God. Number two, he sets us firmly in our inheritance in a future land called the kingdom. And we have this assurance without any fear that we'll ever suffer loss again. So what was lost to mankind in the flood, our land and our security on the land, our peace in the land, that is now restored by faith, by following Abram's willingness to follow God. And then lastly, while men were actively seeking a name for themselves and sinning in the process, God now will step in through these promises and give us a new name. One that is glorifying to him and reflective of our obedience. And he grants us the adoption of sons into the family of God. Where before we were alone, an enemy of God, alone in this world, strangers to the promise, as Paul says, we are now able to reunite in a family. This is your family by faith. It goes to the four corners of the world. And we are united in one voice, if you will, the Spirit. And even if we all don't speak the same human language, that too one day will be put aside and we will all be speaking whatever the heavenly tongue is. That is the promise that he has given through Abraham to all of us. We're back in a position that God wants us to be. 
You know, the Apostle John was privileged in his day to see the fulfillment of all of these things in advance when he saw the revelation that God gave him and he recorded in that letter. Look what he records in chapter 21. Looking forward to this future day when all of these things come to fulfillment in the world. In chapter 21, verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. How is it we get to that place? Because of a promise he made to a man, Abram, which he then fulfilled through his line, culminating by the way his son did the work necessary on the cross to put this in place. When you consider God's plan, all of these details, how he's been working this from the beginning and continues to work it today, you come to a place, I think, where Paul came at the end of chapter 11 in Romans. I love the way he finishes that chapter because it so neatly sums up this wow moment that you get to whenever one of these plans plays out in your head and you see the details and you see it all come together. Paul says this, and I'll end with this. Paul says in Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of God or who has become his counselor or who is first given to him that he might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's go to prayer. Father, thank you for your promises to a man, Abram. And thank you for the model that you established through his life. The model that looks upon the world and says, there are none who are worthy, none who seek after God, none who do good, no, not one. But by your mercy and grace, you step into the man's life like you did with Abram. You turn him away from idol worship and away from the world and away from rebellion, and you revealed yourself to him, and you communicate your promises to him, and you declare that these things will be. And you call him to follow, and you give him the strength to do so, and as he does, Father, you bless him immeasurably. And you carry that forward, one family at a time, working out your plan. We can see it, we can understand it, but, Father, we cannot comprehend it. Not in its fullest measure. Thank you, Father, for that work of mercy and grace. And thank you, Father, that you have recorded it for us so that we may even just now begin to appreciate it. But I also ask, Father, as I do every week, that what we learn is not for ourselves alone. How many people, Father, do each of us know in some world within which we live, some circle in which we move, who don't understand this? who are still seeking for something in this world, who come out each day dissatisfied with what they find, who are hurting, who don't understand, and who blame everything and everyone, including themselves, for the sin that is common to all men. 
And yet, Father, before us today in the pages of the Scripture, there is the answer for them and all others like them. There is a story, Father, that explains where they've come from and where they can go and how they get there. I pray, Father, someone in our world this week would be the audience for that message and that we would be prepared to deliver it. Keep it on our hearts. Keep it on our mind. Let it sink in. And then give us the boldness and the courage to share it. For this is a place, Father, that the believer gathers to be edified, to be strengthened. But outside these walls is the place the world gathers, Father. And you have put us in the world so that we may be ambassadors. Let us carry the message properly. And if it be your will, bring us back next week, as always, to continue in this study. We thank you, Father, for Oak Hill and for the chance to join each week. And we look forward, Father, to continued study in this book. And I praise you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.